As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Hello and welcome to the Athletic Soccer Show. Today we're going to be doing a little bit of a deep dive into the top of the Bundesliga table. My name is Jack Collins and I'll be your host today. And I'm joined by the Athletic and Tifo Football's wonderful Seb Stafford Bloor. Seb, how you doing, mate? I'm doing good, Jack. It's Friday afternoon. I'm doing exceptionally well. Can't wait for the weekend. Indeed, indeed. Me neither. It's lovely to have you back on the show and I'm looking forward to chopping up the Bundesliga and having a little look at what's going on at the top in Germany with you, Seb, because we've got Bayern and Dortmund joint top of the Bundesliga on points, although Bayern's goal difference is aggressively superior. And in the last 10 years, there's only been one other time where Bayern haven't been clear at the top going into match week 23. That was 2018-2019, Nico Kovac's only full season in charge of Bayern Munich. And I think it's just been interesting to see, you know, at the start of this season, there were discussions going on around the Bundesliga and whether it's fallen off in terms of enjoyability because of Bayern's incredible dominance over the last decade. And suddenly we have a title race that you would argue is not just two teams, but actually Union Berlin behind them and RB Leipzig, a point off that. Suddenly the Bundesliga is probably the most exciting title race in Europe, maybe the Eredivisie aside. Yeah, I think I'd agree with that, Jack. I I think one of the problems is because of what's happened over the last decade, uh, people can look at the Bundesliga table and see a title race and still not believe one's actually happening. So we're recording this on a on a, on a Friday afternoon and um, a couple of hours ahead of Borussia Dortmund against Leipzig. And obviously that will be that'll have an impact somewhere. And I think with each match day that approaches, you expect to fall back into the, the old pattern of, well, buy and pull clear now. And they'll be in that situation where the Bundesliga is kind of wrapped up by spring and they're able to, to kind of focus their guns on the Champions League. Hasn't quite happened. Hasn't quite happened. And actually, what's really interesting about it is it's not as if throughout the season, all the chasing teams have been outstanding consistently. They've all had wobbles. They've all had moments, particularly Union Berlin, just before the World Cup, seemed to run out of steam a little bit. They just seemed very jaded and fatigued. Borussia Dortmund didn't start the season particularly well and seemed to take a while to settle into 
you know their new system and their the new um well the you know new era under Ed and Terzic, let's be fair. Um, and it's only really since the, the beginning of the year that their consistency has moved up a notch. Leipzig too. Leipzig have sacked a manager. They got rid of Domenico Tedesco early in the season and they're on to a second coach, um, Marco Rosa. So you have all of these kind of imperfect sides, all a little bit flawed. And yet the narrative is still everybody has to be absolutely outstanding every single week. Otherwise, Bayern will slip away. So it's a very confusing time. You're not really sure... We're not really sure what to make of it. Also, and I know we're going to talk about Bayern in more detail. It's really hard to know what Bayern Munich are. Really hard at the moment. Yeah, I think this is it. And, and look, we're going to we're going to talk about each of them in turn. And I think we'll start with Bayern, and then we'll move on to Borussia Dortmund and and Union Berlin in turn. And I think this is it. Your point about the fact that there haven't been you know incredible amounts of competition throughout the season. Obviously, Freiburg were up in that yeah. conversation. They've fallen away a little bit. Union have, have been there or thereabouts most of the most of the time. And Dortmund have kind of come from the mid-pack and, and caught up with this run in 2023. But I think the kicker for me is that you have to go back to 2011-2012 to find a Bayern side that had a lower points tally than this at this stage in the season, going into match week 23. That year, a very good Borussia Dortmund end up steaming to a title win by eight points. And actually that year at this point in the season, I believe that Dortmund were four or five points clear of Bayern already. I don't think that this BVB side is as good as that one, but I think it's worth pointing out. And people will obviously point to Robert Lewandowski's departure in terms of what has affected Bayern Munich. But is it the only place that it's dropped off for Bayern this year? Because it doesn't feel like it. No, I wouldn't say so. Um, also, one of the problems I have with the Lewandowski narrative, Jack, is that it degrades a little bit the contribution of Eric Chupamoting, who I think has played really well. Like, I, yes. I think he's been, he's one of those guys who's been, um, who suffered a little bit from some unfortunate highlights in his past, but he has been a very good player. He's been a very good Bundesliga player for a very long time as well. He was at Schalke for a while before, obviously, Stoke City and uh, and Paris Saint-Germain. Um, but there's a reason that a lot of really good coaches seem to like him. Um, his finishing has been pretty good and, and um, he's done a pretty decent job in what's been a difficult situation, not just because of Lewandowski leaving, but so Sadio Mane came in and um, it's hard to overstate just how much of an, a high-profile signing that felt for Bayern Munich at the time and how hard they celebrated it um, and how it was presented in the press. But obviously, Mane was lost to injury before the World Cup. Hasn't really, like, is yet to re-emerge as the Sadio Mane we know. There have been a few issues with Leroy Sané um, and his levels of performance. He's always been a little bit of a streaky player. I think we know that. And, and, and has always been that way throughout his career. Then you look further back and um, at some of the, the sillier things like Obviously, Manuel Neuer's skiing injury and the argument that um, resulted from the firing of Bayern Munich's goalkeeping coach, who was um, actually best man at Manuel Neuer's wedding. Um, so in some senses, typical kind of FC Hollywood fair, right? It's what you would expect from a country where Bayern Munich are really the singular focus of the football media. It's not like in England where you have like four or five Bayern Munichs and attention is, is spread evenly. It is Bayern Munich and very little else on the pages of Build or, you know, wherever else in the kicker and... Um, it's so you've got this kind of muddle of difficulties. There's been um, there's been other nonsense around. Like there at the beginning of the season, there's a little bit of disgruntlement over how Julian Nagelsmann was dressing on the sideline. So all in all, behind serious systemic structural issues, lack of consistent goal scoring, and that shows most of all in the fact that um, 
draws have really been the enemy for Bayern Munich. Yes, they've chucked in a, a, you know the occasional bad performance. Obviously, they lost to Augsburg. They lost to uh, Mönchengladbach more recently. But they draw a lot of games, which you think and you're tempted to believe that had Lewandowski been on the side, um, probably wouldn't have happened. They'd have found that scruffy goal from inside, you know, between the, the goal line and the penalty box, uh, penalty spot. Um, also, some question marks about the defence. Um, I think sort of, I think it's fair to say that uh, Derek Meccano has been quite harshly treated since he arrived. I feel like he's been um, subjected to sort of a little bit more scrutiny because of his prior relationship with Nagelsmann um, and the kind of the over-focus on his decision-making, the occasional error he's made. Um, Matthias de Ligt has, um, much as he did with, with, with his move to Juventus, clearly a really, really outstanding centre-back of the future. Is he an outstanding centre-half of, of today? I don't know. I think he's just very good. Um, and so that's yeah. been a, a kind of, that's been an area under construction. Benjamin Pavard's future is a little bit up in the air too. And I also think that um, it's been kind of, it's gone under the radar since it happened, but I think David Alaba's departure hurt Bayern Munich in more ways than people really appreciated. He had a very flexible player. He had a very talented player who contributed in so many ways. Also, and I I'm, I'm, I apologize for the cliche, serial winner, just just knew how yeah. to win. And that's, look, look at the guy's mantelpiece, right? Um, beyond his attributes as a as a technical player, free kick ability, uh, like outstanding, really is outstanding as a center half, a fullback, a midfielder if you need, Possibly a wide midfielder too. Uh, there aren't many players of that description in the world at any one time, and and so this confluence of factors is is very very difficult to overcome. Even if you are Bayern Munich, even if you have these fantastic advantages, and even if your rivals aren't necessarily having the very best seasons. Yeah, I also think Seb, when you talk about these things, and I think this is really pertinent to the losses of both Alaba and Lewandowski, and then Neuer as well as an injury loss, in that you're losing leadership. And again, it's thrown around as a cliche loads in the experience equals leadership. And I don't believe that those two things are necessarily true, although I think there's a tendency towards more experienced players having good leadership abilities because they've got used to it. I think with Thomas Muller having a slightly indifferent season, shall we say, although he's been much better of late. There is this kind of sense that there's lots of people sort of umming and ahhing as to who the characters to step up in the big moments are for Bayern. And I think it, it kind of floats in because... The goal scoring thing is one thing, but then you look at the Bundesliga table and Bayern have scored 64 goals and have a goal difference of plus 43. You look at the squad statistics and there are five players over over 10 goals in all competitions this season. Jamal Musiala, the aforementioned Chupo Moting, Leroy Sane, Serge Gnabry and Sadio Mane all on 10 plus in all competitions. And I think it's important to note sometimes that this is what Nagelsmann wants. Like, this is actually what he's gone for. It's goals shared around was a major feature of his Leipzig teams. Right. And now he's getting it at Bayern Munich. And so there'll be plenty of pointing towards the Lewandowski absence. But I do wonder if Nagelsmann last summer went, yeah, I don't mind that. I don't mind that at all. It's a very interesting situation to look back on because it felt... I mean, if if, if if I can kind of begin with the plug... Rafa Honigstein wrote an excellent article about this in um, in The Athletic at the beginning of the season when he was talking about how the lack of affection at Bayern Munich for Robert Lewandowski and how yeah. um, there had always been a slight distance there. Like he wasn't necessarily a, 
um, a character for whom there was an awful lot of affection because he wasn't always the most personal guy. I think over time that changed and he kind of um, not redesigned himself, but restyled himself as a little bit of a kind of a, more of a team player. I certainly think that that kind of bears out in the statistics. He became a um, he became much more aware of the virtues of his teammates as his Bayern Munich career uh, wound down. Uh, I think if you Forgive me, you'll have to kind of, um, yeah, I, I'll have to guess at this, but I think if you look at his statistics from about 2018 onwards, you see a little bit more in terms of what he's able to give beyond just literal goal scoring. And at some point, that was going to have to change because as we said about Alaba, how many, how many Lewandowski's are there at any one time? And if you're Nagelsmann and you're being given the keys to something like Bayern Munich and your reputation is at least, because Nagelsmann is not a, a serial winner, he's... Um, he's not in that category. He's someone who had that to prove when he got to Bayern Munich. He is someone whose reputation is built on style, on ideology, on personality to an extent. It's an awful lot easier um, to make that kind of indelible impact if there isn't a Lewandowski that you have to go through to do that. Um, that's not to say that he wanted Lewandowski out of the club. I, uh, no. Not at all. I, I just mean that if you're to if you're to construct something in your own image, it becomes easier if the whole si- if the whole system is a little bit more pliable at that time. Um, I think that, I mean, the difficulty of it still can't be overstated because how do you replicate that? Because, and again, it's a cliche, but how do you replicate the convenience of having such a gifted goal scorer? Like, how do you, not necessarily someone that's able to do the magical things that Sadio Mane is. Who's the better footballer, Mane or Lewandowski? I would say Mane in terms of his breadth, in terms of his contribution, in terms of his his, his value in different areas of the pitch. But if you wanted that kind of blunt instrument, um, if you wanted someone who was able to convert the kind of chances that that Bayern Munich with all its kind of territorial and possessional dominance was was attuned to create, Lewandowski is your guy, right? And so without him, you have to rebuild the whole thing in, in quite an extensive way. So no, I, I, I can see both sides of the coin, but it's 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 funny, isn't it? Because one of the ironies of this season is that people say that the Bundesliga is boring because of Bayern Munich's dominance. The Bayern Munich situation is fascinating. It's really fascinating because you, you have a scenario potentially where I think they probably get through against PSG because I just don't think Paris Saint-Germain are capable of coming to Germany and winning. But at the same time, can you imagine if Bayern Munich from this position were to be knocked out by Paris Saint-Germain in the Champions League and not to retain the Bundesliga? It's very difficult ter- territory for someone like Nagelsmann. Uh, regardless of his reputation, regardless of his past, Wunderkind coach, all this kind of stuff, it, it doesn't really matter because you have to win. And, and so all of these things are having to be balanced alongside the fact that um, he's working on the brightest stage he's ever encountered. Like coaching Hoffenheim and coaching RB Leipzig is not a preparation for working for Bayern Munich. It's just not like it's it's just it's so different. It's it's a it's a completely different environment with a completely different level of scrutiny. And so it's actually very, it's very, very compelling theatre. Yeah, I'd completely agree. I completely agree. And it's going to be a very interesting couple of weeks for Bayern and for Borussia Dortmund, I think, who we'll come on to next. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you know, you look at Bayern's second leg and then Borussia Dortmund's second leg, PSG and Chelsea, they both have an advantage. You make them both favourites to qualify and then we'll have Champions League quarterfinals towards the end of March and a Classica on the 1st of April. Now, it might be April Fool's Day, but that is very much no joke. And we're, we're talking about the way that this season is is working up and where things are getting to. And look, I, I, I'm going to make this clear because we're recording this pre the game between <laughs> Leipzig and Dortmund tonight. And 
Yeah, as we record this, and if you're a Dortmund fan and this ends up cursing things, I am genuinely sorry because I think this is a fascinating, fascinating story and I long hope it continues. But Prissy Dortmund have had a 100% record in all competitions since returning from the World Cup break. They haven't dropped a point. They haven't drawn a game. They haven't lost a game. And this turnaround in form has been stunning because, you know, as we kind of alluded to at the start of the podcast, Seb, at points in the autumn, this looked like a season that might end up being frittered away for Borussia Dortmund. It looked like a season where it might be like, okay, we, you know, we've built something. It hasn't quite clicked this season, but we'll get to next season and we'll know what to do with it. And suddenly that perspective has very much flipped on its head. And it's like, well, could we win the title? And right now you'd be hard pressed to say no. Yeah, it's really interesting. I didn't expect to be saying this in the new year because throughout the autumn, I remember thinking that Dortmund just reminded me of who they were the previous season, which was under Rosa before he departed the club. They were a team who played in moments, right? They didn't seem to have a, a particularly solid system. You didn't, they didn't seem particularly reliable. They just depended upon contributions from their key players, which is kind of fine when one of those key players is Erling Haaland. Um, but obviously they came into this season with, and I would say last season, maybe Daniel Marlin wasn't quite what, what the club had hoped for. Um, there were problems in midfield. There were problems in at centre half, which was behind the the kind of the signings of Nico Schlotterbeck and Nicolas Sule. Um, but fast forward to the present day, and, and there have been a couple of things which have gone well. Like there's more stability in their phases, definitely. I I am not entirely sure whether they're defending better because I'm absolutely certain that the goalkeeping has improved. Like Kobol's been really, really excellent um, really in good. my mind since the turn of the year. And I'm always wary of when those two, when you say those two things together, there's always a little bit of analytics somewhere which disproves it. Um, so I would say that um, that's an area of improvement. But, but also I feel like they have more players who can contribute in the same areas. There's a little bit more depth. So um, for instance, um, obviously Sebastian Haller has come back and that's been a, a wonderful story, but I imagine a huge emotional lift to everyone. Um at the club, but also Adiyemi has emerged as a contributor, even though he's injured tonight. At the same time, like you've got a player like Julian Brandt playing really well, and he can deputise on the right side of midfield if you need him to. Um, one of the surprises of the season actually has been, um, I think Mar- Maris Wolf has played really well. I was going to say, and there really times, impressive. I, I hope that. Well, I hope this isn't really unkind. The times when I watched Maris Wolf in the past, you thought, "What are you doing there? Who signed you? Right? Who who, who thought that you fit into this system?" He's been like. It hasn't been great. That's 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 not embellished, but he's been very consistent, and some of his delivery has been very good. He's played well in key moments, which has allowed the club to build this, um, to build this recent record. And um, obviously, Marco Royce coming back is important. One of the, the signings that I really like was Julian Ryerson, um, the Union Berlin fullback, is coming to play right back. They've got great depth there because obviously Sule can play right back. Um, Ryerson can deputize you can put Wolf in there as well should you need to and so all of a sudden you have you have a, a, a Dortmund who are playing more cohesively but also who can survive injuries which wasn't the case before because prior to prior yeah. to World Cup you lose Makuku problem lose Marco Royce problem Brandt problem and at the heart of all of this is one he's truly a world-class player now um, Jude Bellingham like um, I went to the Revier derby against Schalke back in the autumn. And the way that that crowd responds to him is quite something to watch because there's such a, a, a tangible affection between player and club now. And I know that's probably a short-term thing, so you might leave at some point. But um, 
he is in every every sense a talisman now. And also, I, I, it's going to sound a little bit like a criticism of Bellingham, but I think in the past, especially last season during the kind of the um, the year of kind of very bitty play, I think there was a compulsion Bellingham felt to try and do a bit too much in midfield. I yeah, he tried to be everything all at once. And that's kind of, that's kind part of, of I think up he had the kind of had to be as well in the, yeah, the fact that when yeah. Dortmund weren't clicking, it, he felt like that because it was probably the case. I, I think is maybe yeah. the, the interesting bit. And I, again, I, I don't think you're criticizing here in this, but there were points where it was like, if Jude Pellingham isn't playing well, Dortmund aren't playing well. And that is it. That's, that's the end of the story. Yeah. A hundred percent. That no longer like, feels like the case. I don't think. This is, this is it. Like, I, I, I think at times it was like watching someone trying to play a six, eight and a 10 at the same time. And you just can't do that no matter how talented you are. And I, I get it's a, it's a complicated situation because if you're aware that you are your team's best and most influential player, which I think Bellingham probably is, I think um, I don't think that's particularly controversial to say it, then that level of responsibility is going to weigh on you a little bit. And now it feels like he's eased into his talent for one for better expression. And the difference is just a just a, a world-class performer who will be worth whatever Dortmund asks for him, I imagine, um, whatever that figure ultimately ends up being. But yeah, I I, I mean, I, <laughs> I hate to say this, but I still don't trust it entirely because on the horizon uh, is that Bayern Munich game. I'll be Leipzig is tonight. I think happen to think Leipzig are a little bit more talented than Dortmund, even if they aren't above them in the table. Um, and you just want to see how Dortmund survive a pressure because... Since coming out of the, the the World Cup break, it was a very long break, but also it felt like people had given up on Dortmund. Dortmund no longer a story. The, the only story around Dortmund for a while was the good news of Haller coming back, which is just wonderful, better than any kind of um, football you could ask for. But also what's happening with Bellingham, what's happening with the recruitment. Is Rafa Guerrero going to extend his contract? Makoku's contract, what's going on there as well? Um, now it's about the title. So let's see what happens when people have actually started talking about that happening and it is a neck and neck uh, race with Bayern Munich because it's a different situation. Yeah, and and this is it. The, the pressure always mounts. I, I've always said, you know, about Arsenal this season to pull a comparison that you can be like Arsenal are very much title challenges and they are currently in poor position, but I don't know if they can do it until they do it. And because we haven't and seen it over the line with this side. And I think this is it. We've seen obviously Borussia Dortmund and Arsenal win titles before, but not with this crop and not with, you know, this manager and, and everything that's going on around it. And so it's almost like until Borussia Dortmund get themselves over the line, I don't think you can say with full assurance that you think Borussia Dortmund or anyone can say that Borussia Dortmund are, are ready to win a title because we don't know. But all the signs are good and that's as much positivity as you can give, especially considering where they were, as you say, coming out of the World Cup break um 100 looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone luckily with 24 7 us-based live customer service from discover everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime day or night yep you heard that right you can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. 
Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Let's move it on to the team in third because this is one of Europe's great stories, Seb, I think. Union Berlin. Mm. And you wrote a wonderful piece about Union following on from their 0-0 draw with Ajax in Amsterdam, a result that obviously ultimately helped them knock Ajax out of the Europa League. Their story is a wonderful one, and I just kind of wanted to give you the floor to express it in, in all its glorious detail, because there are loads of people out there who will be shocked by Union's ascent to the top of the table. But I do think it's one of those stories where the reality is almost more incredible than the perception that's held widely. Yeah, it's it's a funny one, because first of all, let me, let me, let me point people in the direction of Kit Holden's book about Union Berlin, because... Um, Nearly everything I've learned about their history comes from there. Um, that was my sort of kicking off point. That's how I learned about them. Um, and Kit's done a wonderful job in 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 telling the stories around their past, which a lot of people are familiar with. I mean, this is a club where the support, uh, you know, over two thousand supporters helped build their current stadium. Where at one point in their history, to kind of stave off liquidation, supporters actually gave their blood to raise money for the club. It's a place where, for instance. You know, after reunification and the fall of the Berlin Wall, they found themselves in such um, financial di- financially dire straits that um, ticket sellers, so uh, Union Berlin are based in a, a region of uh, southeast Berlin called Köpenick, and the stadium is surrounded by a forest. Um, and there was a point where uh, they sold tickets in the forest so that um, the the sellers collecting the money could disappear out of sight of bailiffs who were chasing the money for cash. This is the club's past. Also, what's very interesting about it is that it is a East German club, and it's the only East German club currently, well, the only authentically East German club in the Bundesliga. RB Leipzig is obviously a different case. Um, and so what you have is a fan base which have, in some instances, grown up behind the wall, um, in some instances, born to people who, were, who grew up behind the wall, who... Uh, grew up under a communist system who in certain cases experienced oppression um, but then at the same time and one of the things I'm still learning about is this idea that we're all taught and you, you'll you'll be able to to kind of um, you'll recognize this I think the kind of the, the story around the reunification of Germany is that the wall fell everybody ran from East Germany into West and never wanted to go back it's not really true there's a lot of you we, we talk to people who actually grew up in East Germany it's a lot of affection for you know certain aspects of society, and you know a lot of distaste for others. But it's it's a it's a more nuanced tale than it's often presented as. And so, in the present day, Union Berlin becomes 
this melting pot of different people with different perspectives, with different life experiences, who've lived under different conditions. Um, they're not a left-wing club. Um, that's that's a label I see quite often. That's that's not really a, a fair depiction of who they are. It's not really who they want to be either. They uh, people at the club will say they don't tell their supporters how to think or vote or believe. And you know the focus at Union is is the football. And if you ever get a chance, listener, to go there, do it's very very difficult to get tickets, and it will be until they expand their stadium. But it's a remarkable place, and it's very it's very English actually. With the kind of the four sides of the ground, close to the pitch, hear the coaches in the technical area if you sit close enough some a proper atmosphere but for them to be where they are today is ridiculous like i've seen the kind of comparison with leicester city this is nothing like leicester city you know leicester city were, were bankrolled by a fabulously wealthy owner and whilst union berlin have had the patronage uh, at times of wealthy benefactors who've stepped in to help them uh the budget on which they've done things is tiny in comparison also if you and you can actually go onto transfer markets and see this, if you see the turnover of player year to year, even now, even when they're in the Bundesliga playing Europe, um, Europa League football, and they they feel kind of safe in the in the assumption they'll be playing Europe, European football of, of one sort or another next season, um, I think the average stay for a player there is about two point two years, something like that, something two point two, two point three, and so at the heart of this, you have is Fischer creating new combinations out of nothing. Uh, they've got players there who are in the old Spider Bundesliga, players like uh, Christopher Trimmel or uh, Nico Gisselman, who no one would have ever thought you're going to be playing in the Bundesliga. And not, not only that, you're going to be knocking out Ajax from the Europe, for the Europa League. And you mentioned, I, I did go to those games, and I think what surprised me is that, um, oh, the first game, sorry, what surprised me across the, across the two was that just how much better Union were than Ajax and how comfortable they were without the ball. And everybody knows that they play in a low block and you know their focus is very much on congesting space in the center of the pitch and taking away the opportunity to create. You know, that, that's fine to say it. I don't know many teams that do it better or are able to go, for instance, to the Iron Cruyff Arena, sit off the ball and just be comfortable doing it and, and give away nothing. Union, Union were immeasurably better than, than Ajax in that first game too. They should have won the match and yeah. uh, we're very unlucky to have a goal chalked off. But um, I still can't see where the and, handball is. I've watched it maybe a hundred times. I can't see the handball. I know, right? Like <laughs> I, I was in the stadium and I didn't I didn't have a replay of it at the time and I saw it when I got back to my hotel that night. And it's terribly harsh. Like that's the kind of handball you give if you want to find a reason to disallow something, I think. Um and uh it was it was terrible really, because it, it obviously it was a an amazing moment for Morton Thursby. And um there's this little pocket of Union fans up in the far far left hand corner from the press box who sat amongst all this flare smoke all night and it just looked like they were sitting in fire or standing in fire the entire evening. And um, obviously when Thursby scored, uh, they went crazy. And it was it was one of the, it was like watching, it's a little bit melodramatic to say history because you know, in the context of world events and that kind of stuff, but it was an amazing footballing moment to witness this club that have come from uh, nowhere. And I mean nowhere. And, and do read Kit Holden's book because it's absolutely fantastic and it really creates the context of what's happened and what Os Fisher has been able to do. They are, yeah, they're, they're a, a great success story. Yeah, I mean, I think this is something you, you touched on there that maybe is the thing that impresses me most is that turnover and the fact that this isn't based in names or it's not based in bringing people in and who, who are going to suddenly be like, you know, there was obviously lots of rumours uh, over the you know, the course of things about who was going to join Union and what was going to happen next and all of these things. But 
you kind of look at it and you go, this is a three five two set in stone. And it has been for, for such a, a period that feels like players are brought in to fit the system rather than the system is moved to, to fit the players. And I love that. I love the fact that Union in so many ways and for such a long period of time, and my friend Sam Ty says this a lot, are the only team who look like they know how to defend in the Bundesliga. And I do enjoy that as, a, as an idea. I don't think it's, I think it's probably a, a, an exaggeration. I think it's a little bit melodramatic, but I do I like the idea that they're built and they're set up in a way that kind of the league doesn't like. It's almost like, okay, the Bundesliga yeah. is this mad transitional league that everybody loves galloping into space and having a great time. And it's what made the Bundesliga so fun for such a long period of time to watch. And Union are coming in and be like, nah, absolutely no, we are not doing that. That doesn't suit us. And I love how stringent they've been with that. And just the fact that they have taken that model and ridden it right to the top of currently, you know, the league. And also you've got to look at them right now as one of the Europa League favourites. Imagine saying that five years ago. It's crazy. I also think like that system point is really valid because I think it helps players. I think it helps players when, when they come in. It's not a coincidence that... For instance, you see someone like Rani Kadira come in and all of a sudden he looks like one of the best defensive midfielders in Germany. That's just crazy. Or that you can... Um, I, I, I think in three successive seasons um, prior to this one, uh, Union sold their top scorer. Um, and when you do that, when you lose a kind of dependency, you need to... Well, it doesn't need to, even need to be a forward. It needs to be, you know, any combination around the pitch. You need to construct chemistry really, really, really quickly. And if you're doing that, you bring in new players. Like, you need to bring in a Jordan P. Fox so that Geraldo Becker can, um, well, start playing the best football of his career. People need to have this idea of what their role is. Um, and the midfield's a great example of that. Like, Kadira Harborough has been otherworldly at times. Yeah. I think the goalkeeper is a very, very good player too. Um, and that centre-back system has been shuffled a little bit. And yet the point you make about defending is like, I'll, I'll take it a little bit further. They are like, it, it is unusual to see a side defend that well in Germany, but it's also quite unusual to see a team play in, in such a consistent fashion and produce results which are so similar. Okay, the blemish ahead of the World Cup aside, what other team in Germany are like, are able to pump out results like that throughout the course of the season compared to, you say, well, Gladbach, right? Who knows what Gladbach are? Because Gladbach are different every week. And it, Gladbach seem to adapt to whoever they're playing. And, you know, they can um, they can beat Bayern Munich, but then they'll get hammered by Mainz two weeks later. Or Leverkusen, who at times you watch them and you think, yeah, this is going to work. And then not so much. Leipzig Leverkusen, are Leverkusen. Like, they have they have they have a role in the in the game, and the game the role in the game is to yeah. just be the weirdest team on the planet. I I, I love them deeply, but I, I sometimes I watch them and them losing the first leg against Monaco in the Europa League in a, with a last minute goal from a centre back from thirty five yards was the most Leverkusen thing I've ever seen happen. <laughs> until Leverkusen then went to Monaco and won on penalties, and I was like. Well, that's just, that's it, isn't it? That's the club in a nutshell. Five-all draw, one on penalties. Brilliant. Great fun. <laughs> having a great time. But no one knows what Leverkusen are going to turn up. You know every week what Union Berlin are going to turn up. And that's, I think, the key this here, the the key here I, right? I think this is the key virtue of Union, is that identity, not in the social sense, like the footballing sense, the football technical sense. What is your role as a player? What is your function as a component? I mean, their recruitment is really, really good. Um in a world where recruitment is always going to be around kind of one in two, 50% chance of succeeding. Theirs is a lot higher than that. 
Um, and that's kind of, I mean, it's a, I mean, for instance, if you've watched, um, if you watched the sort of Juranovic's performances since coming to the club from Celtic and replacing Julian Ryerson, it's like nobody left. I know that Juranovic is a really good player and he showed that during the World Cup and he showed that. And at Celtic, to be fair, yeah. But then, okay, so to draw a kind of Premier League parallel, right, well, Pedro Porro looks like a really good player too. Not at Tottenham, he doesn't. This is the difference, okay? So you have like um, an expectation on what you're supposed to be and how much easier that probably makes it to be a footballer under Urs Fischer. And if you were to take... and this is going to sound really mean-spirited and I don't mean it to be so, but if you were to take a lot of these players out of that system, I'm not entirely convinced they'd be as successful. Um, maybe with, with a few exceptions, I think Geraldo Becker is fabulous. I, I think he's sort of really interesting, multifaceted player. He's worth tens of millions of euros now. But generally speaking elsewhere, you've got a system and a, and a, and a mechanism that just works really, really well and um, gilds the reputation of everybody who takes part in it. And um it's amazing, yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's a really good point, and and to kind of kind of drive it home. I think one of my one of the players I really enjoyed watching kind of in the youth leagues was Diego Lech, who played for Porto's system, and he looked like he was going to break through, and then it didn't quite happen for him at Porto, and they went off to Braga on loan, and in the first mm. half of the season he looked okay, and in the second half of the season I think he got five starts in you know the entire second half of the season. Braga just decided that he wasn't trustworthy enough. And so his second loan spell, he goes off to Union and he looks like a world beater. And I'm like, that's the player I saw at youth level. That's him. Like he, that is the exact bloke who was dominating teams in the UEFA youth leagues and who then went up into the senior teams and didn't look like that player anymore. And suddenly he's gone to Union and maybe he's just grown into himself. But I think that the, this is a really good example of it in that he's gone in there and he looks like he's playing the football of his life again. And I think so much of that is to do with Urs Fischer. He's getting the best out of his players. And that is a really, really impressive thing in a world where players are disposed of where after a yeah. season where they're not playing well. I, you know, I, you're a Fulham fan. So one of the things that's interesting about this is like one of my core beliefs about centre-halves is um, the player matters, obviously, but it also matters uh, who's protecting them, what's happening outside of them, and who's keeping goal behind them. Um, and when those things are in, uh, when those things are right, the level of performance tends to rise. So, for instance, if you look at Tim Ream this season, what's different? He's the same player than the, to the one that was in the, the Premier League last time around. Okay, but um, Jao Pellini is ahead of him, um, who has just uh, been absolutely outstanding. Um, I could watch him tackle players. I don't even want to watch him play football. I just want to watch him tackle players. It's like watching um, like a woodsman going through a forest with a massive axe, just hacking stuff down. He's just fantastic. Um, so like good player in front of him, uh, a goalkeeper playing absolutely outstandingly well behind him. So you're, you're kind of accentuating the opportunity for success. And Union is the ultimate example of that. I you know what your role is. You know that everything is quite stable around you. You know that those wing backs are going to be where they're supposed to be because that's the organization in that system is crazy. Um, if you watch them and you watch how hard they work, like, because when you think of a low block, you think it's quite passive and docile and, you know, it's going to sit there and bounce, bounce out of defense when you get the opportunity. Actually, the grind of it is, is quite something if you get the opportunity to watch it. Like, in Amsterdam, for instance, like the press box there is so high that it's like your own little tactical camera that you don't really necessarily get the opportunity to, to have in like English grounds, for instance. Um, and 
it's a there's this kind of interesting codependency. There's so much trust in that team that if you're a, if you're a centre back, it must be like dying and going to heaven. You know, it, it's um, it's an ideal world to rebuild your reputation. That's a great example because, you know, like he was a difference maker against Ajax in both boxes. You know, so he scored the, the you know the, the the goal from the corner, but also defended ever so well throughout. Um, and yeah, just another success story that you know, um, among about a dozen others. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, just to finish, Seb, you mentioned Tim Ream there, but I wanted to touch very briefly <laughs> uh, on a couple of other USMNT internationals. One at Union, who you mentioned, Jordan Peffock, and then Gio Reyna at Borussia Dortmund. I would say that they're both slightly out of favour in terms of being first 11 selections, but both mm-hmm. feel like they're still very important within the mechanisms of a squad. And perhaps that's quite a nice place to be at two teams that are doing really, really well. Obviously, Jordan started the season as very much first choice partnership with Geraldo Becker. He's been kind of usurped by Barons in the last couple of He's weeks really as, well. as a starter, yeah. who has played really well. Um, and that's fine. Um, and Gio Reyna has kind of become Eden Terzic's super sub, which was quite a nice role for him after the kind of drama of the World Cup, him coming on, scoring a couple of really important goals, coming on, making a difference in late in games in this Borussia Dortmund team. It just feels like they're two players who might not be starting every week and people will look at that and go, oh, that's not good, but actually feel still relatively important within the team. Yeah, I suppose um, Jordan first. Uh, like Jordan, to me, is never going to be a goal scorer, not, at least not in the prolific sense. I see his role as being a kind of a defensive forward, but also a reference point from, for Sheraldo Becker. Um, if you go through Sheraldo Becker's goals um, and you note the kind of the ones that sort of depend on a little interaction with Jordan, it's interesting to see kind of how aware of Becker's positioning he is and what role he plays. He's a very smart player. Um, but also he's really tactically disciplined. I, I suspect this is why maybe Behrens has taken his place recently is that that is a hard, um, that that forward role in that system is hard work. It looks it, at least, to me in my, as a 30-year-old out-of-fit man. <laughs> um, but uh, to me, one of the, the most impressive things about Jordan is the fact that he plays a role in making sure that like the passing routes into the center of midfield just don't exist. It's really hard to attack Union through the middle, and that's because of what he does. Whereas, I suppose Becker's role is more as a, a channel threat on either side. Um, like you want him attacking a fullback or, or running to space. Um, you know, uh, Jordan has an awful lot of responsibility, as does Kevin Barons at the moment. So it's kind of like a, um, and I mean this in a complementary sense. They're sort of interchangeable. The different set of players, sure. Um, sort of uh, Jordan is is a bit. I say is a better technical footballer. And is also sort of a, a, a more of a physical threat just because he's six foot five. I stood, stood in front of him in the mix zone. He, he blocks out the sun. He's absolutely huge. Um, but he's he's also like I don't know. He just looks a bit jaded. I think um, he's uh, you know I, I don't know. I mean, it's speculation, but I, I just wonder sort of um, whether it was quite dispiriting to miss out on the World Cup. Um, I was very surprised by that. I just thought that um, yeah, as an England fan, delighted not to see him play against England because he's. He's very, very difficult to defend against, even if that doesn't always translate to goals. Um, but you'll see him make a contribution before long. Um, he'll be back at some point. Um, I imagine, um, you know, he's, he seems to be very popular. He scored, um, the last goal he scored was against Mainz. It was a winner um, at home to Mainz. And I think the way that his teammates celebrated it, uh, the goal after seeing him sort of go four months without scoring um, said quite a lot about, you know, how he's appreciated within that team. I think that the previous goal was, was against 
Wolfsburg, his little diving header at the near post um, back in September. So he went a really long way uh, without scoring um, and that must have been very, very difficult. Um, Rainer, Rainer's a little bit of a different issue because I, I have no um, perspective on the stuff in capital letters that happened after the World Cup. I, I don't know enough about it really or you know where it came from. But if you look at it from the player's perspective, I think that's got to be super difficult. Like anytime your parents become prominent in your life like that, I don't think that's, uh, I don't think that's easy. I imagine it wouldn't be at that, you know, in such a visible way. And I, you're quite right. Like when he came back, he had three consecutive sub, substitute appearances where he scored. Two of those were winners. Like, and, and that kind of, that helped change the story around him. The thing is, is that he's been one of, Dortmund's most effective players in that regard, but he's barely played. I think if you added up all of his minutes since the restart, the end of the winter parser, I, I'm not sure it even adds up to 100 minutes, 110. I, I might be wrong in that, but it's very, very few. And so, and I, I've got sympathy because we we began the podcast by talking about the depth that um, Dortmund have in, in these key positions. So you'd probably use Reina either as a, an atta- a central-based attacking midfielder or as a right-based player. Um, so he's competing um, for a place in those positions with Marco Royce, Julian Brandt, Karim Adeyemi, potentially um, Maris Wolf, resurgent Maris Wolf. Um, you could theoretically shift Marlin out there. I know he's a, a left-sided player, but you could do. Um, you've got an awful lot of talent that you have to get through to get playing minutes in this Dortmund team. Um, it's extremely yeah. difficult. Uh, and yeah, I, 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 it's not even... It feels like he's in a little bit of a catch-22 because I still think there's a little bit of, not fitness, but sharpness missing from his game. I think he's, I, I think he's an example of someone who, if you were to play 38 games a season, you would see that kind of exponential growth that sometimes happens when a player truly settles and learns that his place in the team isn't threatened by his every touch. Like When a player's on the bubble like that, every pass matters, every cross matters, every mis- miscontrol matters. When a player knows they're a little bit more secure in the team and it's sort of, in sort of the Jude Bellingham way, um, their levels of expression and their confidence and their kind of security in their own game rises as almost certainly does their kind of, um, you know, their effect on matches. And he, he's just not quite in the right situation at the moment. I, I don't know why that is. I'm not going to pretend to, but um, not a wonderful player to have off the bench though, right? What a, what a luxury. And not the kind of player that you'd expect a Borussia Dortmund to have necessarily in that situation as a kind of a third choice attacking midfielder, fourth choice attacking midfielder. That's great depth. Yeah, I mean, it's hard because obviously Dortmund shift their system around a little bit. Sometimes you see three centre midfielders with Chan, Bellingham and Sally Ozchan, who we didn't even mention, but I absolutely love. Which is strange because um, you... he's been great. It's so it's so, so yeah. strange. To, this, is, this is the Dortmund thing, right? Because you, you miss players now, which is a really healthy sign. Yeah, it is. It is. But you're right in terms of Julian Brandt is on one of those streaks and he's been a streaky player for yeah. his whole career, but he feels like he's on a longer streak than usual this time in terms of being excellent. Marco Royce is club captain and very much the kind of emotional heartbeat of the team. It's hard mm-hmm. to get in ahead of those players. And so to sit around on it and, you know, obviously it must be hard to watch. Obviously on the other side, Jamie Bino Gittens has started to, to kind of make his, his way, who's a little bit younger. And you're like, it must be, an, it must be hard for a for Gio Reyna to watch that and be like, oh, hang on. And it just happens to be that the left-hand side is probably slightly weaker than the right. And therefore, Jamie Bino gittens yeah. is getting a little bit more joy in terms of minutes and getting a little bit more of a, a rub of, of the green at that point. But I think it will come for Gio Reyna. And as you say, if he keeps being effective off the bench, 
eventually the opportunities will start to rear their head more regularly. I think he's just got to get his head down and, and work at the moment. And I imagine that that will be a bit of a relief yeah. in some ways to just get your head down and work with all the things swirling around him. Not to be the conversation for a bit, I think would, would really help him. Um, yeah. Like I, I don't have an oversight of his World Cup situation. I've only heard the kind of the stories that have come out of it, uh, but that didn't sound great. So like the problem with someone like Bynar Gittins, I think Bynar Gittins is a little bit of an explosive player. Like he's got that sort of, um, he's got that combination of, um, you know, electric speed, but also like the technical ability that allows him to kind of, um, you know, to penetrate like congested areas. And that is a real virtue in this system. It feels like from the left-hand side, at least, um, that's a, a kind of real virtue. And, and Bynar Gittins has played well since he came back from injury, like, He's played very few minutes, but um, his contributions have been good. And so it's very, very difficult to kind of to, to place him on the other side too. Also, Daniel Marlin has been better this season. Um, yeah. And so he's been a kind of a quiet, uh, quiet performer too. And it's, it's, it's really difficult, really, really difficult. But really good, I imagine, if you are a Borussia Dortmund fan. Uh, and with that, I think we are going to call it a day here on The Athletic Soccer Show. Uh, and all that's left for me to do is say thank you so much to the wonderful Seb Stafford Bloor for all his contributions today. Seb, it's been a real pleasure having you back on. You're most welcome, Jack. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Uh, I've been Jack Collins. This has been the Athletic Soccer Show. We hope you've enjoyed today's Bundesliga rundown. We'll be back with another big talking point next week. Take it easy, gang.